The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking a closer look at Alzheimer's, what we know about the disease, what we don't yet understand about it, and what it's like to live with. A little later on, I'll sit down with journalist and author Greg O'Brien, who is living with early-onset Alzheimer's and has written a book about what it's like to live under the ever-increasing shadow of dementia. But first, let's get a better understanding of what Alzheimer's is and what we know about it. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Lily Naz Hazrati, a neuropathologist and researcher with the TAN Center for Research in Neurodegenerative Diseases at the University of Toronto. Her work focuses on neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and mainly the molecular mechanisms underlying these diseases. Lily Naz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what, what do we know about how Alzheimer's works and what it does neurologically? So what we know about Alzheimer's disease is actually when it's in its uh, um, it's full blown and already established. So neurologically or clinically or behaviorally, you know, at that point when the uh, disease is established, um, people are going to have memory issues, behavioral issues, and the disease progresses over time, and then they become completely bedridden and they won't be able to recognize anything or even feed or take care of themselves. Um, and when the brains are looked at, uh, there are two changes, two massive changes in the brain that we see in Alzheimer's disease. And that's when, uh, you know, autopsies are done on these brains. There are two changes and those changes are plaques. Those are amyloid plaques. It's a deposit of an abnormal protein called beta amyloid in, in the brain in quite widespread. Uh, and it's extracellular, so it's not within any type of cell in the brain and then there is this other entity which is called neurofibrillary tangles and this is composed of tau and those deposit they're abnormal and they deposit within neurons so the consequence of these two deposits we think is downstream to that we think is and that's a hypothesis still is that that those two toxic deposits kill off cells the neurons it's not one time one hit it progresses over time those different uh, abnormal deposits, the neurofibrillary tangles, the NFTs, to make it short, and the amyloid plaques, they take over the brain as the person uh, ages with, you know, with time, basically. And then, um, and it distributes in more areas of the brain, and because brain is organized into different functional areas, you know, areas that control memory, areas that control motor skills and different things, recognition of faces, visual, vision, and everything. So as it invades these different functional areas, the person loses these different functions. So that's the picture at the end of the whole uh, story. But what we don't know is when this thing started, when all these changes started, and also how come it started in some, some people. So these are the remaining questions. So it sounds like there are plaques that build up that we can see later on during the progression, but we don't know exactly what causes these plaques? Exactly. So we don't know why 
somebody starts getting these plaques being deposited. One thing we know is that so there are some genetic mutations in a very small portion of Alzheimer patients uh, that have a genetic mutation, uh, several actually genetic mutations have been identified that predispose them or you know drive them directly to make those plaques. But most of the cases, basically more than 90% of the cases, are what we call sporadic cases. So they don't have any mutations in genes uh, encoding amyloid precursor protein, for example, or the enzymes that uh, cut amyloid precursor protein. There are a few of them. So th- those cases that don't have those gene mutations, pathologically at the end of the day, they're going to have the same picture as the genetic subtype. But we don't know how come that, you know, they start having these deposits in the brain when they don't have any sort of mutation explaining it. So uh, we don't know exactly what causes Alzheimer's, at least not yet. But are there some leading theories? So people have explored multiple theories. They think they thought about, um, and I'm not putting this in a in a, any specific order. It's uh, heavy metals. Aluminium was at some point thought to be maybe a, a culprit in this. Then people thought about um, um, you know inflammation of some sort. Um, but honestly, nobody really knows exactly when and how and why some people are going to get Alzheimer. Whereas other who are going to age, you know, age-matched people who are going to age going to the same levels, you know, of age are not going to get this disease. So we know that the only risk factor in sporadic Alzheimer's disease is aging, but not every person who's going to age and who's going to be beyond 70 or 80 is going to have Alzheimer's disease. Do we have a good idea, I guess, how how rare or common is Alzheimer's disease? So the stats are, um, so the genetic subtype, uh, it, it's basically uh, about, um, you know, 1 to 10% of the um, all cases of Alzheimer's disease. So that's for the genetic subtype. But if you look at the population, and that varies a little bit for the stats, for people who are over 80, um, in some populations you can have 40% of the people over 80 that are suffering from Alzheimer's disease. 40%. That's a big number. That's, that's a, a lot chunk. of people. That's huge. That's huge. Like that uh, that's maybe the reason uh, you know when you every family every family basically everyone knows somebody in their family who has Alzheimer's disease. So so aging is the risk factor and as you age more and more more than you know above 80 and uh, there is a larger proportion of Alzheimer's disease. So is Alzheimer's one of those diseases that has probably been always been around in the same prevalence, but it's just the fact that we're living longer means we see it Absolutely. more often? Absolutely. So uh, people used to, um, so the, uh, the age, you know, the um, people w- would not age as long as now, what we see in our populations. And so therefore, you know, the, the deaths would be more more premature for different reasons. Um, we were not controlling infectious diseases as well as we're doing now. We didn't have all the medical breakthroughs uh, for cardiac disease and other chronic diseases, and we were not controlling them as well. So people used to have other diseases and die before the onset, probably the onset, you know, getting to the age where you see more of these Alzheimer cases. So the reason, yeah, so the reason is it's not like there is a phenomenon of having some 
suddenly an epidemic of Alzheimer's just because people are aging longer or, or, you know, living longer, basically. Can you give us a bit of an overview of Alzheimer's progression and the different stages of the disease, both from a symptomatic perspective and what we know about each stage at a neurological level? Yeah. So we know that, you know, there are those two pathological changes. One is the tangles that are within the neurons, the tau deposits, and then there is the amyloid. The best correlation of the progression is actually with the tau deposit. And there is um, a staging that we use as um, uh, how this tau progresses over time. And when we talk about progression is as how how much more areas of the brain it's invading. So there is a better correlation between the clinical presentation and the tau more than the amyloid itself. So when the tau starts, it starts in an area of the brain called um, hippocampus, which is the site of memory. So that's where it starts. And the BRAC staging uh, scheme or whatever um, system, the BRAC staging system has established six, six different stages. So at first it starts in the hippocampus and that's based on the tau. Then it gets into the uh, more of the cortical areas of the brain, so cortex being the surface of the brain, and it's, uh, it has different functions. First, it could get in the frontal lobe, where it's the judgment. Um, so the first thing you see clinically would be more issues with memory, like where have I put, you know, this and that, right? Um, and recall of the new things. What did I eat, like, at lunchtime? Did I even eat at lunchtime? So it's memory, it's recall of new things. Then it gets into the frontal lobe, then you may get, you know, more of the behavioral issues. Um, so we know that with dementia, there are, in some people, there are some behavioral, um, so judgment um, goes away sometimes, uh, they cannot take care of their finances and things like that. So that's when it gets into the more executive areas of the brain, of the cortex. Then slowly it gets into the areas that are more involved in uh, the motor skills. So that would be the primary motor cortex, for example. In that case, you know, they, they start not being able to walk around as much as they used to or be unstable, and then they become bedridden. And slowly, and the last area where it gets into is um, the visual cortex. And most likely at that stage, uh, they're most often bedridden, so they're, and they can't feed themselves, they cannot bathe themselves, and they cannot recognize anyone, and they don't know how to put, you know, their clothes on. Um, and that apraxia regarding putting their clothes in the right way and how to use utensils, for example, or objects is the stage before that. And that's when, for example, the tau gets into the parietal lobe. But at the last stage, most likely they're not even being able to see anything. Um, So the progression of the tau pretty much follows or the symptoms follow the progression of the tau as it gets, as as it involves more functional areas of the brain. But so it involves a lot the cortex uh, of the brain, you know, that that surface, um, the wrinkled cortex, the wrinkled area of the, you know, the overall brain. I I don't know if people can picture that, um, which has different functions mapped onto it. But also it it does involve also other deeper structures of the brain. There are um, a bunch of, you know, groups of cells that have a a neurochemical signature like uh, um, acetylcholine, for example. And acetylcholine, those cholinergic cells, they they project diffusely to the cortex and different areas of the brain. And when they're involved, they do also um, uh, make the disease worse. And, And actually, as for treatment, 
the only intervention that is available now is to um, block the enzyme that um, inhibits acetylcholine or inhibits the degradation of acetylcholine, uh, and it's Arisa basically. So to boost a little bit the levels of, choline, of acetylcholine in the brain. And um, so it's not just cortical, so there are other groups of neurochemical cells uh, deeper in the brain that project profusely to the cortex that are going to be affected also. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking with Dr. Lilinaz Hazradi, a neuropathologist and researcher at the University of Toronto, about Alzheimer's. So how fast does the disease usually progress? So it's a slow-progressing disease. So we don't know anything about the time of onset. When the patients come to the attention of doctors or they actually, the family or themselves, they start seeing um, symptoms, it's because within the brain they, the disease has already progressed to a point that they have lost some sort of function, so their memory or the, some of the skills they had before. Um, so we don't exactly know when it starts and it could be, you know, decades before you actually get the first symptoms, but by the time they have the first symptoms, um, it can go between something about, you know, um, 10 to 15 years, depending on the person and the health of the person. But remember that nobody really dies from Alzheimer's disease itself. It's really the complications of Alzheimer's disease. So when I was saying that they are losing some of their functions, for example, one of the functions they lose is the swallowing of the food. They, they tend to choke more on the food and the food can get into their lungs, uh, either, you know, fluid or uh, solid pieces. They can get into their lungs and therefore they get pneumonia more often. Often. And because they're not mobile, mobile as, as much as they used to be, uh, they're mostly bedridden, so they're more prone to get pneumonia. And pneumonia is one of the ways, you know, that they actually pass away. And the other thing is they become very frail also. There is physically, uh, most Alzheimer patients are very frail. They become very thin down and we don't understand why. It's not because of there is not enough uh, intake of food. Most often there is, but they're very frail and also they have more, um, they're more prone to have osteoporosis. And so therefore, one of the other killers in Alzheimer's disease basically or that accompanies, um, is pretty much in the population with Alzheimer's disease is fractures. So they, uh, they may fracture their bones, their hips much more easily. It can be spontaneous. They just stand up, but there is already a fracture and they just fall. We don't know, you know, if the fall made the fracture, but most, most likely it's because they had a fracture then they, that they fall. And complications of fractures, hip fractures in elderly, um, you know, there's a huge percentage of mortality uh, related to fractures in in elderly and most so in people with Alzheimer's disease. We sometimes hear the term early onset Alzheimer's. Is the difference between that and regular Alzheimer's just the age at which you get it? So the early onset, yes, it's, it's the age, but most often and um, almost 100%, early onset Alzheimer's disease is because they have a genetic mutation that, and there is a familial history. So it, that genetic mutation runs in the family. And so, the ones that have the genetic mutation, they tend to have the early onset Alzheimer's disease. So there is a part of Alzheimer's, at least of the genetic type, that is heritable. Absolutely, yes. So, for example, um, I'm going to give you one example of, uh, so in trisomy 21, 
where they have a triplication of their chromosome 21. Um, so you have all the features of trisomy 21 with, you know, the eyes, and they might have heart uh, issues and whatever. But what happens is that chromosome 21 is where you have the amyloid precursor protein there. So in trisomy 21, they're actually overexpressing that protein. And one of the complications of trisomy 21 is the deposit, is Alzheimer's disease. But because they're overexpressing that protein, they tend to actually deposit that protein much faster and more and lead to Alzheimer's disease. Some other people have genetic mutations in the enzymes that cleave or cut into pieces uh, that amyloid precursor protein. And if there is a mutation in those, then there is a tendency to cut the amyloid precursor protein into pieces that tend to accumulate. And those also, and they can pass it on to the next generation. So if you have one of these gene mutations, um, what yes. is the risk profile change? How much more likely are you to develop Alzheimer's? So I'm, I'm not a genetist and just don't want to say something wrong, but you have a good chance to have it. So your risk definitely goes up then. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so if you carry the mutation, you're going to get the disease. So we've got genetics, uh, we've got age, but are there some other risk factors for Alzheimer's? So the environmental factors are really uh, not clear to anyone. So we absolutely do not know if uh, there are environmental, specific environmental factors that are going to play any role specifically f uh, to get the disease or not to get the disease. And also we know that there is no geographic uh, distribution of uh, specificity. You know, like we know that, for example, MS, multiple sclerosis, there's a tendency in northern um, countries where there's less sun and things like that. But for Alzheimer's disease, um, it's emerging more and more that it happens in, in actually any country and any sort of industrialized or non-industrialized countries. It's just the stats are not always there. You know, when we talk about India, for example, or China, but they do struggle and they do have large numbers of uh, cases with Alzheimer's disease. Um, the other factor that it's in interests, uh, is of interest to me at this point is trauma. Uh, we're not saying that every case of Alzheimer's disease uh, has a history of trauma sometime in their lifetime. But trauma, and more specifically concussion, and the new entity uh, that's called cr chronic traumatic encephalopathy that has been widely talked about in the media re related to the football players, American football players and the hockey players and other contact sports, um, that may predispose someone uh, to actually get Alzheimer's disease at the end of their, you know, later in their lifetime. Um, so trauma may induce it. But so the interest of the trauma to me or the concussion uh, studies is that we know when things start, when they have the concussions. So we actually may follow now people, whereas Alzheimer's, we don't know when it, when it starts. So now we have a disease that is going to give us a, an opportunity to actually follow people um, at the time, from the time that they have their multiple concussions, uh, their 
symptoms over time and with CT and concussion people do get psychiatric issues and depression, anxiety, all sorts of different things, memory problems and they evolve over time into full dementia. Not all of them do but a subset of them do and pathologically um, it's a lot of deposit of that tau in the brain sort of, you know, pretty um, similar to Alzheimer's disease. They, in the proportion of the cases, they lack the amyloid plaques, but in, in some of the cases, they do have the amyloid plaque. And even at some point, you have a full-blown Alzheimer's disease that masks pretty much the um, different changes that we see pathologically for chronic chromatic encephalopathy. So it's an interesting entity to study now to understand maybe the mechanisms that may be involved in how people get sporadic Alzheimer's disease. It's really fascinating because it, it seems like it allows you to kind of target and focus on people and some of the really early stages of the disease. Exactly, exactly. And we can follow them over time. Uh, so I do a lot of autopsies on uh, people who have had concussions and who had developed, you know, some sort of neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disease. Our experience here in Toronto has been that we have, um, in the younger people, we see uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But when we get, you know, more people who have lived longer after the concussions that, and that had some neurological issues and some, you know, different things and full-blown dementia, um, they have um, different types of neurodegenerative disease. The main one is Alzheimer's disease, and but we've seen also Parkinson's, so it may also be helpful for understanding the what happens at the molecular level when uh, even for other entities such as Parkinson's. At this point, we're hypothesizing a few things and trying out, you know, different molecules and different targets because what would be really interesting is if there there is a, a common mechanism, molecular mechanism underlying all these neurodegenerative diseases or let's say chronic traumatic encephalopathy and Alzheimer's disease because those two share the same sort of abnormal proteins being deposited in the brain. So if it's the same molecular mechanism, then, um, you know, we may be able, for example, uh, to intervene much, much earlier, much sooner before the symptoms become full-blown. Because what happens with the brain, and that's quite different from other organs, is the brain, as you know, it doesn't regenerate itself. So once the cells, the neurons are getting killed one after the other, or they die off, you cannot regenerate them. We want to block that, you know, block, uh, prevent it, you know, prevent the, the further progression. The problem with Alzheimer's, though, is that we have no biomarker at this point to detect it much, much earlier before the whole thing starts. So they, at this point, the only thing, if we find the target, targetable, um, uh, you know, uh, a drug that targets a specific pathway, we still would have to intervene in the early stages but we cannot intervene, you know, much earlier. So I know we don't have any uh, cures, obviously, for Alzheimer's, but do no, we have we any treatments or drug therapies right now that have any evidence behind them? So, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, for Alzheimer's disease, there is Aricept. That's the commercial name of the, the drug. It's, um, it, it just uh, in, tries to increase the levels of acetylcholine, a neurotransmitter in the brain, but it, it's not treatment. It's really like um, in 
some patients, it's been shown to uh, reduce or blunt down a little bit, um, you know, the, some of the symptoms and mainly the behavioral things. And some people also have said that it may be slowing down a little bit the disease, but it's not cure at all. We're far from that. And really, its effect is minimal. Um, and then the other aspect that people have been putting a lot of effort and the pharmaceutical, and it has gone into clinical trials, is immunotherapy, which is targeting those amyloid plaques and try to wipe them out. So there's been a lot of uh, different immunotherapy. In, uh, so immunotherapy is generating um, uh, an antibody that can cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain and attach itself to the amyloid, you know, that abnormal protein, and get rid of it uh, through the immune system, basically. And, and then reduce the load of amyloid plaques in the brain. So those trials have not been very successful. One of them was stopped because the, the drug itself the, um, um, induced encephalitis in a proportion of the patient. So it's, it was a complication that was not desired. Uh, so it means that it has, you know, bad effects. So you don't want to have an inflammation of your brain over that, you know, for what they already have. And, and also, pathologically, when they looked at some of these patients that actually had successfully received immunotherapy, and we looked at their brains, there was a reduced load, an exceptional reduced reduction of the load of amyloid. But clinically, they still progressed. And they still were, you know, went on with their disease um, as as if they had not really received any any immunotherapy, meaning that you know at the time that you have those amyloid plaques and the tangles established, maybe that is a downstream endpoint of the whole phenomenon of what happens molecularly in the brain, um, and that's just what we can we, the visible part of it. But there is a whole bunch of things that happens before the endpoint is those plaques and tangles, and although. We, there are people who believe that plaques and tangles are actually toxic on their own. We think that maybe there is a whole phenomenon before, and I'm just going to throw in there the idea of inflammation in the brain, for example, that leads to, um, that, uh, that makes the neurons diseased or put them in a pathological environment, and those are just um, endpoint reactions to that environment, to that toxic environment. Uh, so taking uh, the amyloid out, I mean, through um, immunotherapy was was an evidence for me, I mean, uh, one one evidence to me that, you know, the amyloid plaque is uh, just an endpoint thing. And also we tend to try to um, compare, um, you know, say that the genetic subtype where there is overexpression of the amyloid, for example, and the sporadic cases, although pathologically they look the same, they, they have plaques and tangles, they're the same phenomenon, you know, that we start with the amyloid abnormal deposit and that induces the changes in the brain and the death of the neurons. But maybe in the sporadic cases, and that's part of my, the research I'm interested in, is that maybe there is a whole other phenomenon that happens and that the end point is that you have those deposits of amyloid and plaques in the brain. So for somebody who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's tomorrow, what yes. would the prescription be, I guess, for lack of a better word? 
you mean medical prescription? Yeah, yeah what can what can people person? do? Yeah, so I mean, uh, the main things they they'll, they're going to try. I mean, there isn't much available, as I said. Is is again, Iceb is going to be prescribed in some cases, and um, they're going to try that. Uh, but otherwise, there isn't much. Like the, um, the first line medicine, like you know, the family doctors, the neurologists, all all the people, um, the geriatric uh, doctors, physicians, all those people, they don't have many tools in their hands at this point. You know, there is maybe a lot of things in the pipelines, but they haven't really reached that level where um, widely we can give to the patients safely um, and to have any effect on the on the on the disease. So um, it, it's mainly giving maybe Aricep in some cases. In some cases, also Aricep is not tolerated well um, because it's an anti, you know it increases acetylcholine, so it uh, it has a systemic effect. Also, they may get cramps and other issues. Um, and they may not be very compliant with it, and they may not want to take it. Uh, so the the caregivers have to be on on top of it. But even if, but otherwise, there isn't much to do except to um, organize life around that diagnosis from that point on. So one of the things is uh, to write to the Ministry of Transportation, get the driver's license. Um, cancelled, um, make the house safe. Um, we know we, we we hear about the you know the wandering around and people getting out there when it's really cold and not finding their way back. So it's all about just making the environment safer and and trying to get information knowledge uh, for the caregivers mainly and um, plan for the future. So there is a lot of planning that gets in in there. So the the worst thing one can do. Although I mean the diagnosis is absolutely not interesting, is um, is to just plan not to deny that it's there and just plan for the future financially, uh, legally, um, security, um, all these different levels. One other experimental treatment I actually didn't talk about and that's emerging actually from here in Toronto is that uh, some of our neurosurgeons are trying to do deep brain stimulation in the brain. You remember that. Brain simulation was applied um, somehow successfully for Parkinson disease, for the motor symptoms of Parkinson disease. So mm -hmm. they implement, implant electrodes deep in the brain in a specific structure for Parkinson, and that did have dramatic good effects on the Parkinson disease. It does not, um, again, uh, stop the progression of the disease, um, but um, at least it's, um, with, you know, they, they don't need to take as much um, medication, L-DOPA, because there is something available for Parkinson, and that's quite different for Alzheimer. But nowadays they're trying, and that's what I'm saying, that that's not first line still. Some people are trying to do this deep brain stimulation in some specific areas of the brain. Um, again, it may relieve some of the symptoms, but it's not going to cure the disease. So what we have right now at its very best may just buy you a little bit of time. Yeah, it may blunt a little bit of the symptoms um, in some people, not all, um, but um, we don't have much. And the main reason is that we have, it's been a hundred years that Alzheimer's, Eloise Alzheimer's, it described the brain of that patient who had plaques and tangles. 
August Dieter, I think I I never spell, you know say her name properly, uh, but what happened in those? Uh, so he described those, but since a hundred years, yes, we've we've um, there's been there have been breakthroughs as from few of the genes that are directly um, uh, can cause Alzheimer's disease in the genetic subtype, but the progress over uh, for the sporadic subtype, you know, the ones that do not carry the gene, and that's what comprises the majority of the case, Alzheimer's cases. So we haven't really understood, we have no precise understanding as what's the mechanism, like what's the molecular thing that makes a person have Alzheimer's disease when they're in, in their 80s, for example. So just before we let you go, um, I obviously did some research on this topic on the internet and with, mm-hmm. with all things on the internet, there's a lot of bad information out there. So uh, I'm just, I'm just going to throw a couple of things at you. Sure, and you can ahead. swat them down Have or those. poof them up as, <laughs> as appropriate. Um, so there are a lot of people online promoting supplements of one kind or another, things like vitamins, yeah. antioxidant-rich yes. foods, um, as yes. preventative measures for Alzheimer's. Is there any yeah. evidence for this? No, none. So, um, uh, you know, some people promote, for example, there is this idea as if you, for example, exert your brain intellectually, uh, you may just keep away Alzheimer's disease. So there are some even people who have marketed, you know, different um, softwares or games and things like that. Obviously, keeping your mind sharp is a good thing, but to be really honest, I don't think that it's going to uh, prevent you, guarantee that you're not going to get Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the other thing is that there are a lot of supplements that people are uh, putting out there as being effective in either preventing Alzheimer's disease or uh, either, um, you know, slowing it down or having some sort of effect at some stage during the disease or before the, any disease is established. But again, there is no good evidence for any of those. Um, first of all, you have always to question with those supplements that are quite costly, actually, how pure they are, you know what? And also the active ingredient has not been shown properly to have any effect on on the disease or the prevention of Alzheimer's disease. So um, it's just a waste of, a lot of waste of money for, and I can make a parallel to that is, you know, the weight loss um, uh, market. So many of those pills and different things that are out there, the miracle cures, well, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. So you have to be very cautious about all those. And also, because we don't know what what is there, although they say it's natural, it may actually cause have some toxicity and um, cause more harm than anything good. And they're not pure. And uh, it's not a very well-regulated um, um, you know, uh, industry. So we don't know what goes in that pill that you're popping in the morning. Um, so we had uh, people have talked about vitamins also. There is this whole thing about coconut oil. There is um, curcumin. Um, so, there's so, so many things have been named. 
um, and also level of education, doing sports, more exercise. But really, if you look into the populations that have are sitting now in the nursing home, and I've gone to nursing homes, uh, if you go in there and you inquire about their past, um, they will you will see that there are highly educated people sitting there. There are people who were eating very well. There are people who used to do a lot of sports and maybe a lot of people who were popping those pills and vitamins. Um, I don't think it's a guarantee against Alzheimer's at all. And it's just uh, it's it's shooting in the dark, and um, and that could you know you, you can hit the wrong target, or you just or it's just in in the void. It's nowhere, right? But I don't think it's an um, we cannot allow ourselves to shoot from the hip with these things. We need to understand it first, and then go with the targeted. Um, uh, intervention. And I think with complex diseases affecting the brain, is not just not one tool or one miracle pill that, that would do it. It's a combination of different things that would, but they need to be proven and uh, scientifically proven and, you know, really show effective. Uh, you know, even in science, you know, we do these very perfect science experiments in our labs. And then when we come and they seem to be very, very promising and loads of money goes into it you know, through grants and things. But when people start trying those on human beings through clinical trials, we a lot of those actually don't go through because they're not effective in human beings. So, so I'll be, I'll be, you know, careful as um, where I put my money when I go for these supplements. Lily Naz, thank you so much for coming on no the show. Problem. It's really it's been my pleasure. If you want to learn more about Lily Naz Hazrati, her work or Alzheimer's disease, we'll have some links up on our show notes to start you off, which you can find on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me is Greg O'Brien, investigative reporter and award-winning journalist with over 35 years of newspaper and magazine experience. He has contributed to many fine publications over his career and has also written several books, written and produced documentaries, and has been a scriptwriter. In 2009, he was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's, which led him to write a book about his experience called On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. Greg, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Now, the the name of your memoir is On Pluto. Can you tell us what that name means to you? Sure. And and uh, first of all, uh, the, in, in Canada, the, uh, I'm not sure where the, in the bookstores. If anyone is interested, they can uh, easily get the book uh, at Amazon.com. But um, the uh, uh, the name On Pluto, uh, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, came from when I was a young man, an investigative journalist, and I was covering organized crime in the U.S. And when I talked to sources off the record, uh some reason in my earlier days in my late 20s I was fascinated and still am with the planet Pluto which is now a dwarf planet and uh, so I would tell my sources look we're going to go off the record and out to a place where no one can hear what is said we're going to Pluto and um, I have no idea why just the, the planet just fascinated me and so later in life uh, with my buddies when we 
you know, go out at night and talk about the unmentionables of life that no one, things that no one else should hear. My buddies would say, are you taking us out to Pluto? And I'd say, yep, you're absolutely right. I am. So in Alzheimer's, it's a 24 seven fight against the symptoms. And, uh, but there are sometimes in intervals, the symptoms take you over and you drift out because there's no more fight left in you. And, uh, I had to invent a place that I was comfortable going to. So, in, in in my Alzheimer's haze or drift, I called it Pluto. And my grandfather, maternal grandfather died of Alzheimer's and my mother died of Alzheimer's. And my paternal uncle uh, just died about two months ago of Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, I, they, they, they've obviously been out to Pluto and uh, there'll be a day like them that I don't come back and I want my family and friends to know where I am. So I called it Pluto. So you were diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's in, uh, I believe, around 2009. But when did you first start to experience the symptoms? Well, a couple years uh, before that. Um, and and you know, first of all, you know, one of the things I hope people get out of this interview from the heart and from science is that Alzheimer's is not your grandfather's disease, even though my grandfather died from it. In most cases, or certainly more cases than not, the disease can take 20 years to run its course and uh, just horrific symptoms that one has to fight through. But a lot of people, because Alzheimer's affects the mind, uh, and, and it's under the umbrella of dementia, that's, that's a Latin derivative that sounds like a demon howling in the desert. Nobody wants to talk about it, or nobody you know wants to, if, if you tell someone you have Alzheimer's, it's like you have leprosy, they, they don't want to deal with you. And um, so, you know, and, and this is what happens with the disease. I just forgot your questions. Uh, Alzheimer's in the early stage is like a light that uh, just flickers out. So uh, I apologize, but it's good for your listeners to see this. So w- tell me your question again. Um, I was curious about some of the early symptoms before your diagnosis. Oh, well, like you just saw, uh, short-term memory loss. And um, it, it, uh, it not recognizing people I've known all my life, uh, not recognizing familiar uh, places. And it progresses today. Um, 60% of my short-term memory is gone. It can be gone in 30 seconds. Uh, I don't recognize uh, people I've known all my life, and including my wife on two occasions. I don't recognize familiar places that I've been in. I, I go into uh, tremendous rage, which is one of the symptoms. My judgment is poor. I've lost continence at times. There are times I pick the phone up and I don't remember how to dial, and I get so angry I throw it across the room or I pick up my lawn sprinkler in the backyard on Cape Cod in Massachusetts and I don't know what the lawn sprinkler does. I can't remember and I throw it against a tree because I'm so mad or times when um, I open our, you know, I'm sure in Canada people will relate to wood stoves. We have a wood stove and I'll open the wood stove and my brain will tell me that it's okay to push away or push open that that, uh, interior piece of glass that's smoking red hot until my hand burns in third degree burns and that's and, and then what happened in addition to that is is I had a, uh, a significant head injury, which doctors said unmasked the disease in the making. And it's it's akin to sports, as you see in football, Canadian football, NFL, soccer. Um, when you get hit in the head, uh, it will not cause dementia. But doctors now uh, believe that what it can do is it can bring on a, a case of Alzheimer's or a form of dementia quicker than it it. It, it might have taken to, to rear its ugly head. 
So did you suspect early on that you might have Alzheimer's since both your mother and your grandfather had it? Yeah, I, I but I was in denial and, and denial is a big part of this disease. And one of the chapters in my book is uh, it's a Mark Twain uh, quote, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. And uh, um, I had to fight through that. And then then you have the denial of, of society around you that doesn't want to take this disease serious, you know, until um, you can't pronounce your name. But, you know, w- what I've said in my book and in talking with doctors, um, you know, through a blessing of my parents and from God, uh, I'm working off what the doctors call a cognitive reserve, which is a backup tank of, of inherited intellect. And the right side of my brain, to keep it simple, the creative sweet spot is is still pretty much intact, although the writing and communication process takes far longer. The left side of my brain, and I believe Alzheimer's attacks the weakest parts, um, or or the parts that 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 uh, take the most complicated thought process, uh, and and you know the executive functions uh, are in a free fall. Um, you know, as I said before, judgment, continence, uh, rage, um, not recognizing people, all of that. I mean, there was a time I, I'm. I've cut way back on my driving. In fact, I'm, doctors won't let me drive at night anymore. And my son drives. But um, Cape Cod is, for those just geography-wise, uh, it's it's close to Boston. And I did over the years, I've done a lot of work in Boston. And uh, one night, driving home late at night from Boston from work, um, the light went out. And like I said before, in the early stages, it's like someone shutting a light off and in your head. And I didn't know where I was, where I was going. Um, and I remember my mom who died of Alzheimer's telling me that one of the worst things about Alzheimer's is feeling lost. So I didn't I didn't pull off the uh, uh, side of the road. I just kept driving. It wasn't until three o'clock in the morning when I'm outside Massachusetts in Rhode Island, uh, past Providence, uh, heading to Connecticut. The light back went back on and I realized where where I was. But the irony of it is I was actually driving home. I was driving home to 25 Brookdale Place in Rye, New York, where I grew up. And my brain said, you're going home. And that's where home is. And, and that's that's how the disease works. It's it's a, it, it's a demon and, and it's a... Uh, it's a cunning demon. You've talked a lot in your book and in other interviews that you've done about the need for us to speak more openly about Alzheimer's. And you previously in this interview mentioned some of the shame that's associated with having it or with trying to admit that you have it when you know something's wrong. How much of that impacts people's abilities to get early diagnosis and get whatever drugs might be available to help kind of push the end result back as far as you can? Well, you know, I think part of the problem is that society has not taken this disease seriously. They, 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 they have stereotyped it as a disease of the aged. And, and yes, you know, there, there are cases where people get into their 80s and 90s and, and, and they, they, they uh, you know, they, they, they have severe dementia. But in many cases, uh, that dementia, that Alzheimer's started, could have started 15 or 20 years before. And these individuals had to suffer, as my mother did, through these symptoms without telling anyone about it because society wouldn't take this disease serious because society or the stereotype said, we don't really take think of Alzheimer's as a disease until you're 85. And that's shameful. 
Um, and and I, I give uh, um, a lot of speeches and, and people who can articulate like me but deal with the horrific symptoms show up and, 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 and we talk and I'm putting together a group uh, called the Pluto Project. Uh, in fact, I'm fine with this. My email is geobrien, keep it simple, G-O-B-R-I-E-N at capecod.net. And I'm trying to put together a network of people across the country and the world uh, who are willing to speak out of, of, about this demon of a disease. And, um, and, and so, yeah, there is a lot of shame when, when a lot of people aren't taking it seriously. And, you know, the, the other thing about it is it, it just gets back to, um, if, if, if there's something that, that is, is depreciating your mind, um, it's, it's people see that as, as the essence of who they are. Um, I, I've, I've said in my book that, um, you know, memory's not all that it's cracked up to be, um, because we have perceived memories, you know, how big was that fish you caught? Um, how long was that home run you hit? Um, how many soccer goals did you score when you were 16? Um, we all want to remember what we want to remember. And I think in life and in diseases like Alzheimer's, it forces one to move from the head, which you don't trust anymore, to the heart, which, again, it's not my job to proselytize, but, but I, I believe the heart is the soul and the soul survives. And I've learned uh, through this to speak and write from the heart, not the mind. And I think it's a journey that we all are predestined to take from the cradle to the grave if, if we're willing to seek that out. I mean, as I said before, my job is not to proselytize. I've raised Irish Catholic, but um, I'm more evangelical these days. But I tell people, don't tell my relatives in Dublin because they'd stone me. <laughs> this is Science for the People, and I'm here with Greg O'Brien, award-winning journalist and author of the memoir On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. So having experienced uh, and gone with your, your mother on the journey through her Alzheimer's, how has the experience of having Alzheimer's yourself been different than what you may have thought before you were diagnosed? Um, it's a lot scarier than I ever thought. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it, it's a lot more lonely than I ever thought. Um, it, it, it's just, you know, in, until someone walks in those shoes, they don't know. And, and, and it's wonderful that they try to know and more people need to try to know. But, you know, God bless the doctors and, and we can't live without the doctors. Um, they do wonderful things, but, um, I suspect that in some case, in, in, in some places in the disease, um, people who, in, in, particularly those dealing early on with, with Alzheimer's, where they're able to communicate, actually know a little more about what's going inside their brains than the doctors, because the doctors aren't walking through this. The patients are. And um, I think the doctors need to listen more to the patients. But um, the doctors, obviously, are a lot smarter than us. So I tip my hat to them. And, and, and I know I believe you you have a parallel interview with someone in medicine and and I, I they're the heroes of the world and and I they've done some wonderful things and I've been involved with doctors at Harvard and other places and and uh, I have nothing but respect for the work that they're doing. Can you tell us a, a little bit about how Alzheimer's impacts your daily life and and the daily life of your family? Yeah, it it um well I'll just start with my life and then the family's life. Um uh, everything is a strategy, okay? Um, I don't trust my brain anymore. It used to be my best friend, but now I, I don't see any chance for reconciliation. And the work that I do as a writer and, and a producer and a political consultant, 
I've always had to multitask. I I can't do that anymore. So I have to come up with strategies. And um, I'll talk about a baseball analogy, and and I know they play some baseball up in Canada. When a pitcher um, is younger, sometimes they throw smoke. They they throw as hard as they can. As they get older, they have to think and, and act with a little more finesse. In Alzheimer's with the strategies, um, you have to come up with strategies that are finesseful, if that's a word, and it probably isn't. Um, it, and so you'll never see me without my MacBook Pro or my iPhone, and I write everything down that I need to write out. I have strategies for the day and where I'm going to go. Um, I hate to use the word benefit, but um, having uh, been a journalist and still a journalist and, and, and raised on asking questions um, and, and having done a certain amount of public speaking, I'm at a little disadvantage over people who haven't because um, I, I, I know the flow. I know when you get stuck, you just move on to the next thing. And I'll give a speech and um, you saw it at the beginning of this interview, but I will tell you the light went off in my brain several times since we started talking, but I've been trained to move on. So in front of me, I, I have uh, for this interview a, a, a bunch of printouts. And uh, um, and and so those are the strategies. Another strategy is, is uh, and I know other people do this, I, I email, email myself a lot, but I can email myself 30 or 40 times a day because I'm afraid it will, I'll forget. And, and, and when I'm talking to someone, I don't worry about it anymore. I'll just say, you know, excuse me, I just remember something I have to email, and most people are, are understanding about that. And But there's a time like on a Friday where I'm saying, okay, the weekend's going to come. I'm going to relax a little bit. I'll look at my inbox, and there are 45 emails, and I go, oh, my God. And then I realize that 40 of them are from me. So, But you got to laugh. You, you, have to, <laughs> you can't survive. First of all, you can't survive Alzheimer's. Let's be clear about it. There's, uh, there's no cure. You can't remove a brain. But the journey... Uh, and, and let's face it, you know, anyone who's listening, if you don't think you're going to die someday, would you please raise your right hand right now? So we all go. But, um, but, the, <clears throat> but the journey uh, on this disease is a journey that requires a lot of strategies, faith, I believe, humor and hope. And um, I think that's the prescription for getting through this period and, and also connecting with other people with the disease because there, there's a sense it, 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 it tends to strip away the loneliness when you know there are other people who are feeling what you feel. And how about your family? How does your Alzheimer's affect their life? Um, well, it, 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 uh, I try to hide some symptoms, but other symptoms I can't. And, um, you know, there are times when they cry. There, there are times when they try to help. They're, 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 um, I remember when uh, I told my son, Brendan, who's a writer and producer, um, we were actually out in California at a family reunion overlooking uh, Encarnado, overlooking Paradise. And um, I talked to him. I wanted to show him my medical records. He didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want it. He kept saying, you know, this is BS, this is BS. And finally, he took my medical records, ripped them up and threw them off the balcony down into Paradise. And he said, Dad, it's BS. And he used some expletives uh, because I know it's true. And he buried his head in my chest and cried like a little boy. He was in his late 20s then. Now, the, and, and so that was our come to Jesus moment. And, and I think families need to come to God, to come to Jesus, come to the 
universe, however you define a moment, and 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 communicate, you know, with uh, with your family. Um, the humor in it is the next morning I woke up at five o'clock in the morning and realized that all my medical records that basically said I was losing my mind were spread out all over paradise. So <laughs> I, I got a trash bag and I went down into. Um, paradise and i picked out uh, all of the uh, uh the shreds of my uh um medical records that said i was losing my mind and put them in a trash bag and that that moment wasn't lost on me so there are many people who have the experience of watching someone they love struggle with alzheimer's and also many people who are or will experience the disease themselves like you and you have firsthand experience with both do you think your past experience with your mother and your grandfather has helped you fight your own alzheimer's certainly um, uh, and, and like I said before, I, I hate to use words like benefit or an advantage, but but I do. Getting back to being a journalist, and you know, it's very difficult to kind of strip yourself naked and talk about things that no one wants to talk about. But as a journalist, um, and I've covered a lot of stories, um, knowing what I know, shame on me if I don't write this story. And um, and I I talk to a lot of advisors and friends, and I said I worry about what my editors will say. I worry about what my friends will say. I worry about what my clients will say. So my doctor has got a good sense of humor. Said, "What the hell do you care? You're not even going to remember anyway at some point." So <laughs> we laughed, and he said, "You know what? People will stand with you." And God bless them, they have, and I'm seeing them stand with, uh, um, you know, people across the country. And, and you know, I, I don't want a single cent less, by the way, spent on, you know, cancer and AIDS and autism and, and, and ALS and all those horrific diseases. Um, I also have cancer, prostate cancer, and I'm not treating it. It's my exit strategy because I don't want to go to that place where my parents, I mean, my mom and grandfather did and have the family have to deal with that. But but um, the, the Alzheimer's scares me far more than cancer. If you could give any piece of advice or knowledge to someone who is a loved one with Alzheimer's, what would it be? Um, the advice that, that I would give someone with Alzheimer's is um, try to walk in faith, humor, and hope. You can't get this through uh, by yourself. Talk about it. Um, realize that, um, hey, um, we're not stupid. We just have a disease. I've said before that, and, and it's true of anyone listening, I'm sure, who has this disease that I, I see my my brain is, 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 is an iPhone, still a sophisticated device, but one that uh, has a short-term battery, uh, that pocket dials, that breaks down and gets lost easily, but it's a sophisticated device. And, um, and, and, and so my urging to anyone listening is to say, look, in that place of the soul, you're still the same person. So try to go find the place of the soul. For the caregiver, who are the heroes of the world, because they're not going to forget, and I've had the opportunity to to, to, to be in both roles, um, I, I would say show as much love as you can. Show as much understanding as you can. Try to f- reach the place of the heart with um with 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 people who are struggling with Alzheimer's and and another thing and, and and it's just an example of such let's say we're looking at a white wall if someone with Alzheimer's wants to call it a blue wall because their mind won't tell them that it's white or they don't understand the name for the color white what does it matter let it be blue don't correct them because if you correct them in many cases they will know that they were wrong and it's going to reinforce the disease with them and they could get angry now it's all the difference in the world between that and someone with alzheimer's whose spouse died 10 years ago who still thinks the spouse is alive i think without overcorrecting you have to find ways of of 
you know, stating the fact that, that, that the spouse is no longer with us. But, but on the trivia things, let them go. So just before uh, we end, what do we need to be able to beat this disease? If you could have all our listeners do something to help the battle, what is it? Well, we need a cure, and we're not going to get a cure without resources. So I would say two things. Educate yourself. Uh, read my book or other books. And I said before, my book is on Amazon. But, but, but um, you know, I, I'm into the education. I, I'm not into this project to sell books, but I think people reading the book is, is, is part of the educational process. There are other books that have been written. But more importantly, reach out to your lawmakers, uh, the people who make decisions, um, who decide what the resources are to uh, find a cure for this disease. Alzheimer's pales in comparison uh, all throughout the world on uh, resources that are put aside to find a cure compared to what we're spending on cancer and, and heart disease and AIDS and and, uh, and and other diseases. And again, I don't want a single cent less spent on those diseases, but I want more commitment to find a cure for Alzheimer's because it is going to take out this baby boom generation. And baby boomers are not listed, not limited to the United States. They're all across the world and uh, that age group. And it's been said that in short years to come, there'll be two types of people if we don't find a cure, those with Alzheimer's and those caring for someone with Alzheimer's. So this is a, um, and I hate cliches, but it's a tsunami of a disease where the wave is cresting. It's not coming. The wave is on the beach. Greg, thanks so much for speaking with me today and sharing your experience. Um, your story is really important, uh, and your your book is, is a very courageous one. I appreciate your sharing your time and energy with us and our listeners today. God bless you. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to talk to you. If you want to learn more about Greg O'Brien and his fight against Alzheimer's, definitely pick up his memoir, On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. We'll have links to his book, his website, and other resources for you at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.